Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This week I watched another very sobering documentary. Some of you probably know what I'm referring to. Shiny, happy people. Anyone? All right. So another sobering documentary. Uh, it's the story of, of the Duggar family, made famous by TLC's 19 Kids and Counting. Um, the, the real story, I think, of the documentary is, is Bill Gothard's Institute in Basic Life Principles, the IBLP. And Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar are basically avatars of this, this Institute in Basic Life Principles values um, and, and their principles, which are kind of a, a hyper-fundamentalist view of male supremacy and and female and child obedience, and culture warring, and the right way to school, and the severe forms of discipline, and, and the core of that apple we come to find is quite rotten. High-profile Christian failure stories have become a cultural phenomenon, and my friends from seminary and I were processing this. It's like, should we watch it, or is it just sort of like, just like wallowing in the misery of it all? What's the deal? Why has it become a, a cultural phenomenon? Well, I think some of the stories are told well. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, if you listen to that, I think it's great because it carefully parses out um, real Christianity, authentic Christianity from distortions. Others, like this documentary, I think, paints with too broad of a brush and sort of implies that basically all Christians are, are, are dangerous religious fundamentalists. And we can say, that's not true. That's, that's, that's not how we all are. But, but the proof is ultimately in the pudding. Where are the counterexamples? Now, there are many, and one of my prayers is that those stories would be told on a, on a national scale, not just the failures. But the proof is in the pudding. We need counter stories to this story, the story of, of a, we might call it a fictional faith. Acts 4 gives us a counter story. It gives us a different story, the story of a non-fictional faith, a story that illustrates that there is a real faith, there is a sincere faith, there is a deep and sweet faith available to us. And the fact that, really, Acts 3 through 5, the whole structure of the story that's being told here, contrasts fictional faith from non-fictional faith. If you could bring up the slide, Catherine, I didn't warn you, so to put you on the spot. Thank you very much. So the Bible Project, as it often does, makes sense of this for us. Structurally, you can see how Acts 2.46 and Acts 5.42 form a bookend of this section. And it's bookended by this idea that the disciples are gathering in the temple and daily and house to house. In between those bookends, there's fruitful ministry, healing and preaching, and then there's persecution. And the persecution comes from the temple and the, the religious leaders. So Jesus' followers are doing good stuff. Temple, temple leaders arrest them, persecute them. And then in the middle of, these, of this sandwich, like right in the middle, which is pointing to something, is the story of how Jesus' followers sell things and support the poor. What's the deal? Why is that the middle of the sandwich? Why is that the thing that's sort of highlighted even in the structure? Well, it seems random until you realize that the temple was actually supposed central to one of the temple's purposes was support and care for the poor. And what had happened in Jesus's day, we see is that the temple has become corrupt and it's become a the leaders are devouring widows' houses and they're no longer caring and supporting for the poor the way that they were that they were supposed to. Now, we see now in the structure the story that's beginning to emerge. Two temples, we might say. This is a tale of two temples. The temple of, 
the old temple of religious fundamentalism, a kind of hollow, not, uh, fic- become a hollow thing. And then there's the followers of Jesus, the new temple that God is, is making. So with that in mind, this contrast, what are the marks of this new temple, of this non-fictional faith, of this authentic faith, the faith of Christ's followers? The first mark I want to point out is in verse 23. After they were released, Peter and John had just been imprisoned. We didn't have time to read it this morning, but this is pointing you back in the story. After they were released from prison because they had performed this miraculous healing and they were preaching about the resurrection and the leaders didn't like it, they put them in prison. Now, up until this moment, everything was good, right, for the early Christian movement. 3,000 were being added to their number and then 5,000 and then people were being baptized and healed and it was all great. And oh my gosh, the trajectory is up and to the right. But then suddenly there's, there's persecution, and what happens? Suddenly there's, there's opposition, there's the threat, there's the reality of prison, there's this looming threat of, of execution even. Now this persecution isn't like, like the ministry might be audited to see if it's financially honest. That's not persecution, that's justice. It isn't like the leader is being held accountable to the law because they've been caught in participating in cover-ups. That's not persecution, that's, that's justice, that's good. This is different. This is, we might kill you because you won't stop talking about Jesus. That is persecution. That's injustice. That's religious fundamentalism, actually. The old temple leaders say, believe what we tell you to. Believe what you must believe, or we will kill you. We'll imprison you. We'll beat you. We might kill you. Or more commonly today, we'll ostracize you. We'll disgrace you. We'll shame you. There's also, I would say, a a non-religious fundamentalism, a secular fundamentalism that does the same thing. Believe what we want, or we're going to ostracize you or cancel you or, or kill you. So then, what does the non-fictional faith community do? What does it do in response to this sudden turn, the sudden hard times coming upon them? They pray. And what do they pray for? Well, what don't they pray for? Look at verse 29. They don't pray for God to smite their oppressors. They don't pray for for vengeance immediately, for fire to rain down. They've, They've learned better now. They don't even pray for immediate deliverance from their danger, do they? Verse 29, and now, Lord, this is their prayer, look at their threats. Grant to your servants courage to speak your word with all boldness. Grant your servants to speak your word with all boldness. They they pray for courage to keep preaching the gospel. Look at the steadiness of this faith. It's so steady. When hard times come, nothing changes for them. Before, they broke bread, they worshiped, they fellowshiped, they prayed. Now persecution comes, times have gotten hard. They worship, they break bread, they fellowship, and they, they pray. One of the first ways to tell, I think, that faith is, is non-fictional, that it's the real deal, is if it endures through suffering, through hard times. Think of the story of Job. Here's the whole setup for the book of Job, beginning in chapter 1. Satan comes to God and he asks him, do you think Job obeys you out of the sheer goodness of his heart? In other words, no. He obeys you because you bless everything he does. You know, everything goes well for him. That's why he obeys you. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything he has? He'd curse you right to your face, says Satan. So that's the challenge. Well, then God allows everything that Job has to be taken away. Job is broken. Job is deeply depressed. He's completely devastated. He, he scandalizes the religious around him by, by this unfiltered lament before God. He complains, but the point is, who does he complain to? He keeps complaining to God. He doesn't curse God, as his wife said, curse God and die. No, he doesn't. He says, though he slay me, I will trust him. 
So he's honest, I'm slain, yet I will trust him. In the end, Job is, is vindicated through this devastation. This is a template of non-fictional faith. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Now, one common theme I see in the, the fictional faith in some of these documentaries we're looking at is this false premise. And the premise goes like this. If you do X, Y, Z, like God says you should, he will not slay you. He, you'll, you'll get the thing you want. I mean, typically wealth or, or money or power. But, but if you obey him, or in Bill Gothard's case, if you obey him and the way to parent, and the way he says to parent, your kids are going to be perfect. Everything's going to be great for your family. They're going to be perfect, just righteous icons of Christ-likeness if you just parent them the way the Bible says you should. But that's not, that's not the deal, actually. The deal is this. In this life, you will have trouble. Yes, there are wise ways of parenting and good ways of parenting that tends towards life, but in this life, you will have trouble. There will be wrong turns. There will be detours, especially if you try to follow Jesus. Suddenly, you might be put in prison. You might be beaten. You might be executed. You might suffer in any number of ways. It isn't and up into the right trajectory in the Christian life. You follow Jesus, and you're going you're gonna to have hardship, just like everybody else. And here it is for the first disciples. There's prison. Now, sorrow may take a long time, hard times. They may take a long time to work through. Like, it, you know, for Job, there was a long, gut-wrenching season of life. He was clinging on by a thread. You know, tears were his only food. But when all is said and done, the hard times tell us whether or not we are following Jesus because we know him and, and love him, or if we are following Jesus for what he gives and promises. Now, one of the dark sides of being rich and famous, so I am told, is, is that you, you really you can't know who your friends are. It's a challenge. Are they friends because I'm powerful and wealthy, or are they friends because they love me? And now, if, if a person's friends abandon them, if they lose all their money or fame— was that an authentic friendship? No, it means that friendship was, was a fiction. And so this is how suffering tests our faith. Are we in it for the benefits? Or are we in it for him? Now, if we leave when we suffer, it tells us that our faith in God maybe was a little bit more like faith in a divine vending machine. We put in our quarters, tell him what we want. He gives it to us. That's the deal. And if he doesn't, we kick it and we walk away. Non-fictional faith is marked by a steadiness even in hard times. Now, steadiness doesn't mean stoicism. That's, there's, a, there's a big difference. A steady faith can still, like Job's, and should, I think, come scandalously close at times to, to, to cursing God, to being raw and honest, as we see the psalmist doing. But it ultimately won't. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The second, Acts 4 shows us a second mark of non-fictional faith. And that is, it's a relational faith. A relational faith. What does a robust relationship with another person require? Well, at least three things. It requires knowing about them, it requires conversing with them, and it requires experiencing them and, the, and their presence. And I don't think it's a whole lot different with God in a, in a non-fictional faith. Notice how their prayer starts in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, you made everything. Now, the word used for God's sovereignty here is technically defined as one who controls subjects, as in a ruler of a city. Now, what does he go on to pray? Verse 27, their prayer recalls how the rulers of this city, Herod and Pilate, met to conspire against Jesus. They were really only doing what the real ruler of the city had sovereignly overseen and allowed them to do. You, God, are the real ruler of this city. You're in charge of Herod and of Pilate. Everything is in your, under your sovereign reign. 
So real faith begins here, we might say, with orthodoxy, with knowing about God. Who is he? He's sovereign. That's who he is. Now, if the progressive error is to sort of abandon orthodoxy, knowing the truth about God and, and what that means, that's the progressive error. It's like, whatever. The religious fundamentalist impulse is, is equally damaging. It's to, to sort of cling to a dead orthodoxy, devoid of a living, a living spirituality. Francis Schaeffer highlights this danger. He says, There is nothing more ugly in all the world and which turns people aside than a dead orthodoxy. And I think that's part of what was at work in this documentary. It's like we, we believe the right principles. There's nothing more ugly in all the world than a dead orthodoxy. Job's faith was tenacious because not only did he know intellectually that God was sovereign, he prayed God's sovereignty into the depths of his being. He really, actually, deeply, when he was alone in his closet, trusted it. He prayed, he prayed it into his heart. Now, his hardships remained riddles, didn't they? In the end, he didn't really get an explanation. He got God's sovereignty. He ultimately bowed his head to this mysterious purpose of God. Yes, my life has taken turns down these haunting highways and, and, and wretched byways of immense suffering, but though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Why? Because I, I believe you're actually sovereign. I believe you can actually, in the final accounting of all things, work it for good. Somehow, every, every sad thing is going to become undone in your will. That was, that was the trust that Job massaged deep into his heart. He didn't just believe it. He actually lived this orthodoxy. So how does this work for us today? Let's just get more practical. Look, look at how they actually do this. How do they converse? If a relationship requires conversation, how do we converse with God? They quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This, this psalm is asserting God's sovereignty. The conversation requires two-way co communication. Pra prayer is, is, is a response to God, chiefly a response to his word. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, God, transplant our hearts from the weedy gravel pits of religious chatter into the soil of God's word. Transplant them from the weedy gravel pits of religious chatter into the soil of God's word. And so our prayer isn't, bless me with this, do this for me, make sure this happens. That's the vending machine, right? A response, a conversation is, Lord, your word says in Psalm 2 that you're sovereign. Would you help me to trust it? Because right now I am dealing with prison, beatings, the threat of death. You are the ruler of this city. I, I trust it. Help me to believe it. That's a conversation. So I might summarize it this way. A relational faith begins with orthodoxy, but it must continue into orthopraxy, you might say, especially through responsive prayer. Now third, a relationship involves knowing a person, conversing with a person, yes, knowing them, conversing with them, but finally experiencing them, experiencing the reality of their presence. One time I had a, uh, my old boss used to say that he used to be very terrified of people. Fear of man was his idol, he would say. But then he had a, he had a counselor who told him, Kyle, you have to let people feel the weight of you. Um, you know, interesting way to put it. The idea is this, is that our presence comes with a certain gravity. And he was experiencing the reality that he was hiding from that. And finally, he let people just experience him as he was. The Lord's presence comes with gravity. <laughs> And if we really are near it, if we really are encountering it, we will experience the reality of him. Now, I found that the experience of God is a bit like a mountaintop. Some of you hike, some of you work really hard to get on top of 14ers. The mountaintop is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's overwhelming, but you don't live there. 
usually you live down the mountain and you work really hard to get up it and you spend an hour or two there and then you come down. The scriptures, Acts in particular, give us many glimpses of these mountaintop experiences and sometimes we can be led to believe like, that's it, that's the Christian life. I got to constantly be on top of the mountain. So verse 31, they prayed and the place they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And it's like, that has to happen every time we're at church. The place has to shake and we have to just be on the mountaintop emotionally. No. There's two errors here, two errors to avoid if we're going to have an authentic faith, a non-fictional faith. On the one hand, don't try to live constantly on the mountaintop. It's not realistic. On the other hand, there is a mountaintop, and you ought to experience it, and it's good. So some of you are naturally quite emotional. Anyone willing to share? Patrick? Kind of emotional? Theatrical, you might say? Yeah. Yeah. You seem to experience God sometimes a little more emotionally. You maybe have had some dramatic experience. Others of you are quite rational, quite stoic. You might experience God in a little more subtle way. So two contrasting experiences. One John Edwards, one Charles, sorry, John Wesley. Two Johns, two experiences. John Edwards was uh, walking in the woods in 1737. He writes, I walked for divine contemplation and prayer. And I had a view that was for me extraordinary. Now note that word. This isn't normal. This is extraordinary, even for, for Jonathan Edwards. I saw the glory of the Son of God and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. This continued as near as I can judge for about an hour. He's on the mountaintop for an hour. This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. I wanted to lie in the dust to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. That's a mountaintop. That's a dramatic experience. I know some of you can relate. I've had one experience in my life that feels a lot like that. Others, more subtle experiences. John Wesley. About a quarter before nine, he writes, while this man was describing the change, this man was reading, um, actually, Martin Luther, Martin Luther commentary on Romans. This man was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, and I felt my heart strangely warmed. I, I felt I did trust Christ. Christ alone for salvation. So, heart strangely warmed. That's a legitimate, beautiful experience of God. Mountaintop experience and shaking, wonderful but these things aren't an every day, every morning you wake up, just... And yet, have you never experienced God's reality? You ought to. One way or another, a relational faith does involve occasionally experiencing God. So a non-fictional faith is steady, it's relational, which we've said is, is knowing, conversing with, and experiencing God. And finally, Acts 4 demonstrates that a non-fictional faith is a generous faith. It's a generous faith. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony, and great grace was upon them all. This is verse 33. And then verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. It's interesting that this verse, not a needy person among them, is virtually a direct quotation of Deuteronomy 15.4. And there, God's concern is to keep the people whom he's just liberated out of Egypt through the Exodus, it's to keep them liberated. It's to give them a lifestyle of liberation. So the laws, the laws he gives there in the Torah, especially about the temple and the practices, they're meant to be an ongoing lifestyle of spiritual, economic, and social freedom. 
that the Exodus had begun. So Luke lifts this right out of that context where God prescribes a canceling of debts every seventh year so that, quote, there will be no more needy among you. This seven-year cycle built towards a jubilee year, every 50 years, a year of release, where all debts are canceled, all family lands are restored, this provision had a practical effect. It was, it was a temporal limit on unjust social relationships and crippling poverty. But this temporal, practical thing also had a spiritual kind of hope attached to it, that just as every seven years or every 50 years we experience this jubilee, in the long run, God is going to give the whole creation jubilee, every debt undone, every injustice undone, all things restored, no poor. Now, the key word of the jubilee here in the Greek translation is apokatastasis, which means complete restoration, complete restoration, and this same word flies from Peter's mouth in his sermon in the, in the chapter prior to in Acts 3. Comple God is restoring all things. And the church is now to live in this non-fictional faith by living that reality out. Not just canceling debts, but paying one another's debts. Not just caring for the poor, but, but undoing poverty altogether in our midst. There was no needy person among them. You see? The Old Testament background shows, you, shows us why, though. It gives us the why behind this idea. Not just to be nice religious people, but because we're cooperating with the, the restoration of all things. One of, if not the common thread that I see in fictional faith, and the faith at work in some of these documentaries we're seeing, is the opposite spirit is at work of Jubilee. Not of generous liberation of others, but of selfish, selfish exploitation of others. Of commodifying people instead of generously caring for people. Non-fictional faith is to be a signpost of jubilee, of complete social and economic and spiritual restoration. Fictional faith will, will, you know, it's happy to promise spiritual restoration. It's happy to promise blessing and spiritual restoration. But along the way, it's going to tend towards exploitation and greed. And so a, a, a genuine, authentic faith is moving towards generosity. It's moving towards caring for people. It's moving towards releasing debts. It's cooperating with God's desire to restore all things. You know, sometimes I hear a story of some Christians in some far-flung lands who are building orphanages and risking their lives to love others, and it leaves me wondering, am I a real Christian? Am I like the real deal? Now, it could be easy to hear me say these things, that like a, a non-fictional faith is steady, it perseveres through suffering, it's, it's generous, it experiences God, and for it to have the same effect on you, like, oh, how am I doing? Well, here's what I want to say. Your salvation is a gift from God. All you need is need, I like to say. All you need is to come to Jesus needy and say, I actually do want you, I actually do want you to forgive my sins, I actually do want you to teach me how to live. That's it. Salvation is a free gift. But it's the free gift that's kind of like the sunshine that's meant to grow a garden. Did you catch verse 33? How is this community so steady, so alive in their relationship with God, so beautifully generous? Not because they're just trying harder to, to be better religious people, but because great grace was upon them all. That's the gift. That's the sunshine of this garden. Great grace is given to them all. God's love poured out upon them. Debt, your debt's canceled. 
Generous God being generous to you, that's the gift. But then this sunshine is meant to nourish good fruit, to grow a good garden. And that's the steadiness. That's the generosity. That's the experience of God. So how do you do it? If you're you're feeling like, you know what, I'm taking stock of how I'm doing and I'm not sure I'm doing great. What do we need to do? Well, the gift of his radiant grace is a garden-growing gift. The story of your faith can and ought to be one of receiving God's life and his grace and then reorienting everything around it. So how do you start? Look where they started. They quoted Psalm 2. They went to him in prayer. Do I listen to him regularly? Am I, am I, am I actually, in my heart, listening to his words? And then am I praying them deeper and deeper into my life? There's not going to be a whole lot of progress in the spiritual life without those, those disciplines. Not to earn his love, but to enjoy his love to go deeper into his love. And so let's, let's just do that now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a blessing from Romans on you um, if you're wanting to receive it because we're all just so needy. We are all a work in progress. We can all grow in steadiness and in generosity and in our experience of God. But, so so let's, let's go to his word and pray it and ask him to give us this filling. Isn't it interesting that Pentecost happens, they're filled, but then here they're praying again and we read they're filled So topping off, as I like to say. So we're going to pray for the Lord to top us off. If you'd like to be receptive to this prayer, you may extend your hands. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him. May he fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him. So that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. It is only because of living in your great grace and by your great grace that we can move towards a steadiness in you and move towards generosity and move towards knowing you and experiencing you in ever-deepening ways. So especially for those here who feel like they haven't experienced you, would you help them to experience you? Would you um, break through the barriers that they may have put up? Would you fill them with your Spirit? Would you shake them or just gently warm their hearts with an assurance of your love? We ask for you to shine the the sunshine of your grace upon each of us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.